Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're only doing one chapter today. And we'll be reading uh, the entire chapter, verse 1 to verse 25. This is a significant and important passage. Um, much to unpack, um, but we will hopefully understand something of it this morning as we come to worship. This is God's word here, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees also, carpenters and masons who built David's house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these were the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard, it, heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal, Berazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. 
And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go. And he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as, God, as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geber to Gezer. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that we would not be those who are dull of heart, those who have ears but who cannot hear, those who have eyes yet do not see. Rather, we ask that you'd help us as we approach your word in these moments. We pray that we would see all that you have to teach us, that we would hear you speaking to us through the word, that we'd understand all that your word teaches us about you, about your king. And you, Lord, that we would turn to you, turn to you as our hiding place, turn to you as our shield and as our refuge. Oh, dear Lord, we come before you weak, weary, tired, burdened. But we thank you that we can call to you and know that you are our mighty God, our mighty fortress. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us even now in these moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Psalm chapter 2, which Grant read for us earlier, there is a key statement made in verse 6. And that is this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, there are two essential, essentially two responses to this bold declaration from God. The first response is of those who rage against this king. The kings and the nations of this world rage against the Lord, against his anointed. They do not want him as their king. They do not want his rule, his reign in their lives. No, they want to be king. They want to rule. They want to be the masters of their own world. And in Psalm 2, we are told that their rage will turn to terror. Why? Because this anointed king, this established king, will come to break them into pieces. And so they rage against this king. But the second response is of those who take refuge in this king. There are those that, instead of raging against him, rejoice with trembling at this king. They turn to him, they kiss him in submission, in joyful submission. For them, there is no better king than this king. There is no better king than the king that God has set upon Zion. Because they take refuge in him, they will enjoy his blessedness. That, that's what we see in Psalm 2. And the question for us is, which of these two responses is ours? Do you respond to God by raging against His anointed? Do you rebel and rage because you want to rule your own life like the men and nations of this world? Or do we respond to God by taking refuge 
in His anointed? Do we rejoice in the reign and rule of God's blessed King? A King who is our refuge. And as we take refuge in Him, we find true joy, true satisfaction, true blessedness. Now, why am I speaking of Psalm 2 when I'm supposed to be preaching on 2 Samuel 5? I didn't miss the brief. Now, the reason is actually quite simple. In Psalm 2, God declares how He has set His King in Zion. And in 2 Samuel 5, we see how God does that in a lesser degree with David. They just say in 2 Samuel, we see how God enthrones David as his anointed king in Zion. A king that points us ultimately to the king spoken of in Psalm 2. Now for us to see what God is doing here, we need to recognize what we have in 2 Samuel 5. In 2 Samuel 5, we aren't being given a chronological breakdown of the events. No, the narrator isn't, isn't giving us a breakdown of how things exactly happened. No, he's giving us an introduction, a summary of how, how David's kingdom comes about. And there are a few reasons why we, we say this. For, for example, firstly, the events of verse seven, 6 to 9, many commentators point out, actually occurred after the conquering of the Philistines in verse 17. Secondly, the building of David's house by Jerem in verse 11, many point out, actually occurred later in David's life. And the sons of David mentioned in verse 13 to 14, many of whom were actually only born to David much later. See, the narrator here isn't giving us an exact chronological unfolding of the events. No, he's giving us a pointed summary that is at its core theological. That is to say, the narrator here is giving us a picture of who God is and what God does as he sets his king in Zion. And the picture given to us is meant to motivate us to find our refuge in this king, to to find our hope and our comfort and our joy in this one that God has set on his holy hill because there's no one better than this king. Now, so much so for the introduction. Let's jump into our passage. There are four things I want you to see this morning. The first three really focus on God and what he's doing. And the last, uh, I want to hone in on God's anointed. And like I did last week, at key points, I'll stop and make some points of application. The first thing I want you to note this morning is the coronation of God's anointed. The coronation of God's anointed. In verse 1 to 5, we see that all the tribes of Israel and all the elders of Israel come to David and make him king over all of Israel. And I'm emphasizing that word all there because it's in our text in verse 1, 3, and 5. See, the point is, after being led by Saul and then by Abner through Ishbosheth, all of Israel has finally come to realize that David is worthy to be king. And they give three reasons why David ought to be king. Firstly, David is their brother. He's bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh. He's not some foreigner. No, his family is one of them. He's one who's cared for them. He's mourned for them when Israel's died, when Saul died, when Abner died. He's a brother. 
Secondly, David is the one who valiantly fought for and defended Israel. Although Saul was king, it was David who defeated their enemies. It was David who secured the nation and gave them victory. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, 20, one of the reasons why Israel wanted a king was that they wanted a leader who fights for them. Well, that's exactly what David has done again and again. But above all, thirdly, the greatest reason they want David to be king is David has divine approval. It is the Lord who has set David as his king, who has anointed David to be the shepherd king over his people. It is the Lord who has set David as his blessed king on Zion. In, in 1 Chronicles 11, a parallel passage, we're told in verse 3, they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And so what we see here is that Israel finally comes to its senses. It finally comes to see David as worthy of king. God's people have finally recognized the Lord's anointed. They're finally being obedient now to the Lord's word. And they now finally healed themselves to his kingship and his reign. Now what do we learn about God's coronation of David or David's coronation? Well, we learn something about God's promises, don't we? Particularly we see that God, in fact, does keep his promises. In 1 Samuel 16, God through Samuel anointed David as the chosen king who will rule over his people and it's only now that David becomes king. After more than 10 years in the making, after various trials and afflictions and heartaches, God's promise is finally fulfilled. Now, I'm sure we could relate with David here. As with David, God has given us many what the Bible calls great and precious promises. They're great because a great and glorious and mighty God gives them and they're precious because they reveal the declarations of his heart. They, they reveal his good intentions for us. Yet sometimes, let's be honest, we, we struggle with God's promises. We often struggle with the, the, the gap between his promises and our problems. As we face trials and afflictions, as we undergo heartache, we often wonder to ourselves, don't we, when will his promises kick in? When will they take effect? When will he say what he said? When will he do what he said? What, oh, when will he do what he has said he will do? We often struggle with that gap, that, that tension between God's promises and our problems. Well, the eventual coronation of David encourages us with this. God, in fact, does keep his promises. It might take 10 years. It might take heartache and trial and affliction, but he keeps his word. And this leads me to the first point of application, and that is patience. If God has given us his promises, if we are assured that he keeps his promises, then we need to be a people of patience, a people who wait on God. And Michael Lawrence says it this way, what's striking when you consider that God is a God of promise is that it means that our lives are, by design, lives of waiting. Oh, we don't like that, do we? 
See, we see something of this evening in Hebrews 6 where the writer encourages believers to persevere with faith and patience. He says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. See, David is an example of this, an example we ought to imitate so that we too would have faith and patience as we wait upon our God who has given us promises who has given us abundant blessings in those promises. We ought to wait on Him. But, but beloved, is that us? Are we a people who wait, or are we impatient with God? Do we wait on God's promises, or do we follow our own plans? I, I found this quote by Thomas Adams helpful. It's a bit dated. I don't think we have the same sense of bread as he does, but you'll, you'll understand what I mean with that. He says this, patience to the soul, patience is to the soul what bread is to the body. We eat bread with all our meals and, and meats, both for health and relish. Such is patience to every virtue. We must hope with patience and pray with patience, and love with patience, and whatsoever good we do, let it be done with patience. I think he really loves bread, but we ought to be a patient people. Let's be patient because God has given us his promises, and he's not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he would change his mind. And so the coronation of, the, of God's anointed points us to, to God's promises that call upon us to be patient. Secondly, I want us to see the consolidation of God's people. In, in verse 6 to 16, the consolidation of God's people. From verse 6 onwards, we see the account of David capturing Jerusalem from the Jebusites and making it the capital of his kingdom. Now, as I said earlier, many commentators believe that this capturing of Jerusalem actually occurred after the, the events of verse 17, where David conquers the Philistines. Now, if that's the correct, then it appears that the narrator here is intentionally pushing this event forward. Why is that? What's significant about Jerusalem? Why is the capturing of Jerusalem presented as one of the first acts of David's kingship? Well, the answer lies in the location of Jerusalem. Jerusalem lies at the border of the tribe of Benjamin and Judah. It is the meeting place, as it were, between north and south. And Jerusalem is consolidated uh, together by David with God's people. It is the meeting place there, and it signifies a united people under God's anointed king. And it is under this king that the united people of God experience tremendous victory. Because now mighty Jerusalem has fallen. This must have given the people much hope because the Jebusites in Jerusalem have remained undefeated since Israel came into the land. In Joshua 15, we see that not even Joshua could defeat the Jebusites. Jerusalem was a strategically significant fortress. It was located on the top of a hill, the mountain. It was almost impenetrable. And that's why the Jebusites sarcastically mocked David. For them, Jerusalem is so secure that even their blind and their lame could keep him out. But see, their pride only secures their fall. Because not only does David get into the city, he captures it. In fact, he responds with sarcasm as well, instructing his men to attack the Jebusites. 
who in their pride and their defiance are themselves blind and lame. But what we need to realize, however, is that this capturing of Jerusalem, this consolidation of God's people together as united people in David's capital, all of this isn't primarily the work of David. No, it's primarily and essentially the work of God through David. Look at the key verse at verse 10, which is at the center of this chapter. And David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And here we have the clue for what is the theological significance of Jerusalem. God, who is present with David to capture the city, and this city will become the city where God is present with his people. This is the first occurrence in the Bible of the word Zion. And when we look how the Bible expands on the significance of Zion, it becomes clear that Zion, the city of David, isn't just any city. No, it is the city of God where God's presence is enjoyed by God's people. We see this in the very next chapter. The tabernacle is brought to Jerusalem, and from then on all the way to the building of the temple, Zion becomes the place of God's presence. This is the place where God dwells and meets with His people. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 132, verse 13 to 14, For the Lord God has chosen Zion. He has desired it for its dwelling place. He says, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. See, Zion, Jerusalem, is significant because it's there where God is to be found. It's there where His presence is to be enjoyed Consider what the psalmist says in Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. But He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. See, Zion, the city of God, is significant because it's there where God is enjoyed by His people. And and this idea of Zion, this idea that there's this place where God meets with His people, this becomes the hope of God's people throughout Scripture. As they face afflictions and trials and hardships, as they're confronted by enemies all around them, as they even go into exile because of their sin, living as strangers in this world, Their heart and their hope is set on Zion, set on that place where they get to enjoy the presence of their God. Perhaps this is most clearly seen in Isaiah 25, 6-8. And he will swallow up on this mountain, which mountain? Zion. The covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Did you see what hope Zion offered the Old Testament saint? And realize, beloved, the New Testament saint has the exact same hope. Do we not look forward to the new Jerusalem seen in Revelation 21? That comes down as a bride from heaven. 
a glorious, holy Zion where God is present with His people. Where there's no more death, no more tears, no more pain. Where God is enjoyed by all of His people because He's with them. See, it is this longing to be present with God that is the sure and unshakable hope of God's people. And that hope starts in this chapter. It starts here as God's presence is with David to consolidate his people together, to bring them into a city that will give a foretaste of God's presence to come. And and that leads me to the second point of application I want to share with you, and that is this pleasure. If God is our God who delights to share his presence with his people, if he establishes a city where he can dwell with his people, if that city is the hope of all the saints, then are we a people who take pleasure in God's presence? Do we delight in and desire more of God? Tell me, dear friend, beloved of God, is it your conviction that there is nothing more pleasurable than God's presence? Is it your belief that there is nothing more delightful and joyful than being with God? That was David's conviction. Psalm 16, verse 11, we know it well. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We could point to many other passages, but the the point is this. A believer's heart rejoices, ought to rejoice, in God's presence. Why? Because in God's presence, there is true blessedness. There is true pleasure. There is true contentment. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. He said this way, a, believer's, a believer longs after God to come into his presence, to feel his love, to feel near to him in secret, to feel in the crowd that the Creator is nearer than all other creatures. Oh, dear brethren, have you ever tasted such blessedness? There is greater rest and solace and joy to be found in the presence of God for one hour than an eternity of the presence of men. Dear friend, dear Christian, can you say that? Do you desire after God's pleasure, the pleasures of God's presence? And now, before you answer that, before you say, yes, of course, let me ask you, how does your quiet time look? But what is quiet time? It is seeking God to dwell in His presence, learning from Him. How is your quiet time? Are you seeking God's presence in His Word daily? Or are you consumed by what we've spoken about of screen time? We've spoken about this this past week. We are so consumed by this world and the things of this world, social media, the entertainment, that we often neglect this quiet time, this desiring after God's presence. Let me ask you another question. How is your church life? How is your service in church? Do you delight to be in church? Because church is a small picture of Zion to come because God's presence is to be found here. Do you love the church? Do you love the local church? Do you love to serve in the church? To fellowship with saints? To be in prayer? See, if you have no desire for God's presence now, then you won't have any joy in the Jerusalem to come. 
which suggests, doesn't it, that you're probably not a citizen of Zion. See, the true citizen of Zion desires God's presence. He longs to have his pleasures fulfilled in God who is near. And may we be a people who, who long and delight in God, setting our hope on him. But let's move on to the third point I want you to see this morning, and that is the conquering of God's enemies, verse 17 to 25. In verse 17, we see that the Philistines, the perpetual enemies of God, hear that David has been crowned king over Israel, and they set themselves almost immediately to go against him in war. And we're told that they hastily go looking for David. Why? Well, because they want to bring his reign to an end. They don't want Israel to get stronger. Unfortunately for the Philistines, they make a great mistake. Not only do they fail to recognize that God is with David, but they fail to see, to realize that God fights for David. As he's done before, David here inquires of the Lord for guidance, and after receiving instruction from the Lord, he instinctively obeys, and the result is a defeat for the Philistines and a great victory for Israel. Yet David is quick to realize that it is God who has done this, who has accomplished this victory. Look at verse 24 or 20. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim, which means the Lord of breaking through. But see, it's not enough for the Philistines because we are told that they come back for more. In verse 22, the Philistines again prepare to go up against David. And interestingly, David again inquires of the Lord. Now, I say that's interesting because typically, if you've done something successfully in the past, we almost self-confidently think we can just do it again. David could have said, well, I've defeated these guys before. Let me just go ahead and do it again. But that's not who David is. No, David's confidence isn't in himself, but in the Lord. And so he inquires of the Lord, he obeys the instructions of God, and he again crushes his enemies. And the point again is this. This isn't David's victory. No, it's God's victory through David. Look at verse 24. The Lord has gone out before you to strike down the armies of the Philistines. And what we see in this section, in the conquering of God's enemies, is that not only is David, God present with David, but God's power, God's mighty presence is, is fighting for David. The picture painted here for us is that of, of God being a mighty warrior. He's, he's no limp-wristed, weak deity. No, he, this is a God who is mighty and powerful, who ferociously, like a flood, breaks out on God's enemies. It's illustrated beautifully in verse 21 where after defeating the Philistines, David and his men pick up the idols of the Philistines. And that's not a reference to them uh, partaking in idol worship. No, it's meant to communicate that unlike the God of Israel who fights for his people, the gods of the Philistines do absolutely nothing. In fact, they are so useless the Philistines leave them behind. We must also not miss the contrast with, with chapter 6 and verse 21. In, in chapter 6, Uzziah handles the ark and immediately God strikes him down. Did you, David and his men handle the gods of the Philistines and nothing happens. 
Why? Because the gods of the Philistines are no gods. They are lifeless, powerless idols who cannot compare to the one true living God who fights for his people. And this leads me to the third application, and that is prayer. If the Lord is the one true and living God, if he's a warrior God who fights for his people, then shouldn't we be a people of prayer? Should we not emulate David here by being a people who continually inquire of the Lord? Should we not be a people who, who seeks God's face in prayer because we know that in and of ourselves we are not confident, we are not strong, we are weak and frail people. And, and therefore we turn to the God who is mighty, a God who is for us. I don't quote him often, but MacArthur says this, in prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Thus, the duty of prayer is not to modify God's power, but to glory in it. Dear beloved, do you glory in God's power by being a people of prayer? Can that be said of us? Do we, in prayer, cast ourselves regularly at the feet of God's power? As you face a difficult week, as you face temptations on the left and the right, as you face that boss, that employer, as you face this difficult and stark reality before you, are you going to the Lord in prayer? Are you seeking Him to fight for you in these challenges? I, I suspect that we often treat our God as if He is a weak, limp-wristed God. We often treat him as if he's a lifeless, uh, powerless idol like the gods of the Philistines. Why? Because we're often not a people of prayer. If we were a people of, who believe that God truly is this mighty warrior who fights for us, then we would be a people of prayer. Ian e. Bounds says it this way, Those who know God the best are the richest and most powerful in prayer. Why? Because those who know God know that in their ignorance, He is their wisdom. In their weakness, He is their strength. In their hopelessness, He is their hope. See, those who know that God is indeed powerful, those who know that He is a warrior who fights for His people, will follow God's, David's, David's example and be a people of prayer. May we follow David's example and may we heed his exhortation in Psalm 62 verse 8. He says this, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Why? God is a refuge for us. In fact, we could argue that this entire chapter motivates that end. This chapter calls upon us to turn to our God as our refuge. To wait patiently on him who has given us his precious promises, promises that he keeps. It's calling upon us to draw near to Him because His presence is our greatest pleasure. To seek Him in prayer because His power is given to His people in their need, in their weakness. See, this chapter shows us our God and calls upon us to rejoice in Him as our only refuge. But this chapter, however, isn't just pointing us to God. It's pointing us to his anointed king. And so I want to conclude this morning by looking at the Christ of God's kingdom. 
So far we've really looked at what God does in this chapter, but we also need to note what David does as God's anointed. In this chapter, three things stand out about David, and you can see them in each of the sections. Firstly, we need to note how David commits to God's people. In verse 3, we see that he makes a covenant. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. Now realize, David didn't have to do this. He could have just accepted their, their, uh, their, their plea. He could have just exalted himself over their king. Yet he commits himself to them, and he makes a covenant with them. These people who for years were his enemy. And notice, he, he does this before the Lord, which means to break this covenant commitment is to invite God's disfavor and judgment. See, David commits himself to God's people. Not just that, note how David cares in verse 12, or at least he knows he ought to care. In verse 12 it says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. See, David knows that his duty as king is to shepherd God's people, to care, protect, and love them. And, and so far in the narrative, up until this point at least, he's done this. But note also how David conquers in verse 25. David did as the Lord commanded and struck down the Philistines from Gabor to Gezer. Unlike Saul, who in disobedience failed to conquer God's enemies, David in obedience, armed with God's power, conquers his foes. Now why point out all of this? Why point out David's commitment, his caring him, conquering these enemies? Because David here points us to one greater than himself. See, these descriptions of David are in all honesty better fulfilled in someone else, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Far more better than David, Jesus is the promised king who commits to his people. Before the foundations of the world, in what we call the covenant of grace, he commits himself to, to save us, to be our mediator. He, he willingly accepts the call of his father to bring good news to the poor, to bind the brokenhearted to free the state, to comfort the mourning, to clothe those in ashes with his righteousness. See, Jesus commits himself to his people, people dead in sin, rebelling against him even. He's a promised king who commits, but also Jesus, far greater than David, is a present king who cares for his people. In the incarnation, he, he comes, and unlike David, whose soul despises the blind and lame Jebusites, Jesus came literally to give sight to the blind and to heal the lame. In fact, Matthew 21, 14 explicitly tells us that the blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. Why? Because he's a present king who cares. He's a king who moved with compassion because he sees those around him like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And the good news for us is this. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He pays the penalty for our sin with his blood. He purchases for us eternal life. And he preserves us with his mighty hand. See, Jesus is a present king who cares for his people. Far greater than David ever could. But finally, Jesus is a powerful king who conquers for his people. After giving himself as a sacrifice for sin, Jesus was raised and exalted to the right hand of power, 
where He not only intercedes for us, but He's actually subduing our enemies. He's shattering the plans of the evil one. And from that right hand of power, He will come again to break out against His enemies in the wrath that comes like a flood on His foes. Beloved, behold the King that God has set on Zion. Behold Jesus, there is no other king like him who commits to his people like this. There is no other king who who loves his people with such sacrifice. There is no other king who fights for his people. There is no better king than the king that God has set in Zion. The question is, however, how will you respond to him? Will you rage against him or will you take refuge in him? For the unbeliever here, is he your king? The, the, the Israelites come to David with three reasons why he ought to be king. He's blood of their blood, flesh of their flesh. He's, he's defeated their enemies, and he's God's appointed mediator. Well, you need to come with the exact same reasons. He is blood and blood of your flesh. He's one of you. He's man. He's God incarnate. He knows your sufferings. He knows your trials. And he has defeated your greatest enemy, sin, Satan, and death. And he has been appointed as the only mediator between God and man. Turn to him if you haven't. Trust in him. Find your refuge in him. And you'll be blessed. Now for the idle and worldly believer here, is Christ your hope? Yesterday we sang a beautiful hymn, and I told Terry I'm going to read it. But he, we sang this hymn. Oh, that will be glory to me, glory for me, glory for me, when by His grace I shall look at His face, that will be glory, glory for me. Can you say that, dear believer? Can you say that your greatest delight is to see the face of the Lord? Are you hoping for Christ, who we sang earlier, is our glory and our prize? Or is your hope in this world, in the entertainment and the joys of this world? But for the faint-hearted, weary believer, is he your strength? Is he the one who you turn to because you know that he is for you? Because you know that he fights for you? See, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, there is no better king than the king that God has set in Zion. Therefore, take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are an ever-present help in trouble. Thank you that you are indeed our refuge and our strength. And thank you, dear Lord, that in your presence there are fullness of joys to be had, pleasures forevermore. And dear Lord, as we just think, thunk on or thought through this particular passage And the anointing of David, we pray that our hearts would sing and long for Christ more and more. That we would yield ourselves to Him as our King, the King who reigns supremely in Zion, in the church, but ultimately in the new Jerusalem to come. We pray that you'd help us to truly fix our eyes on Him and to rest in Him as our refuge and our joy. Help us in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.